This is HPR episode 1909 entitled, Creating an Open, Embedded Media Music Textbook. It is hosted by John Culp, and is about 30 minutes long. The summary is, this is a recording of my presentation at the recent National Joint CMS-Atme meeting in Indianapolis. This episode of HPR is brought to you by anhonesthost.com. Get 15% discount on all shared hosting with the offer code HPR15. That's HPR15. Better web hosting that's honest and fair at anhonesthost.com. For the digital age, and please welcome Dr. Jonathan Kulp of University of Louisiana at Lafayette. Thank you. Uh, very glad to be here. I'd never been to this conference before. I'm, I'm finding it a very friendly place, and actually a lot more useful than some of the other conferences I've been to. So. Uh, Thank you for um, welcoming me here. Uh, I'm really glad that you guys did your presentation right before mine because you kind of took care of some of the issues that I was going to bring up and I can kind of move along to some of the the meat of the matter. Um, I count myself as one of those professors who cares deeply about the price of textbooks and wants to try and do something about it. And the presentation today is uh, essentially a summary of how I did it for one of my classes. Haven't done it for all of them yet, but uh, for one class I've um, done it. We've uh, just heard a, a discussion. I mean, I, what I really liked about y'all's presentation is that you have like actual facts and figures and data. I, I didn't bother finding that stuff. I just go from anecdotal evidence that uh, this stuff costs a lot. Students don't like it. They don't buy the books. And so, no. I intuitively know these things. And so, in my counterpoint class, this is a class where. Uh, I was using a textbook that, if you bought it new, cost $125 for an edition that last was updated in 1999 and required a companion workbook that was about another $65. And um, I, there were a few stages. Well, let me go to my first slide there. That's my slide there. For, uh, that's the money problem. That represents the money problem. And so, um, you know, textbooks, they just cost way, way too much. And it's getting better in some way. I mean, some of these electronic alternatives help. They, they make it less expensive to get the materials you need for the semester. However, I've got a big problem with the business model of the, many of the publishers where you, you pay a certain amount, and then once the semester is over, it goes away. And so the, the students who might be interested in keeping it for a while longer can't do it. And so uh, that's because somebody has uh, run off <laughs> with their stuff. <laughs> And so um, I thought I would try to fix this problem for at least one of my classes. Oh, I have a list of some of the textbooks. I, I did run down some of the textbooks that I know about who do this kind of thing and, and just give an idea of like how much they cost and how long you get to access to it. Um, there weren't any options like this for CounterPoint. Um, and so most of them allow you like one semester's worth, maybe for a whole year, some of them. Um, but every one of them 
has access that is given for a while and then denied after the license is expired. Um, and apart from that, I, I object also, not just because it's a business practice that I don't like, but also most of these things are not really ebooks. They, they call them ebooks because they don't really understand what an ebook is, I think. To me, an ebook is something that I download a file that I get to keep locally on my device, and I can put it on whatever device I want to, and uh, I can keep it. <laughs> and so um, here's an example. This is what the Costco Payne theory book looks like on a phone on the publishers. This is Course Smart, which is you know, a popular e-delivery format. It's got some good features. It's got the table of contents where you can navigate very easily around the book and everything. But can any of you read that? <laughs> my, my, my measuring stick is can I read it on my phone comfortably yeah. without doing a lot of like uh, zooming in as well. Well, I'll zoom in, right? Hey, I can read it now. But what's the problem? Okay, it's running all the way off the side of the screen. Well, maybe I'll turn it sideways, or maybe I don't. That's for a later time. So, um, that's an example of an ebook, ebook that that I don't think is really an ebook. And most of the publishers do that. Um, and so, to me, that's not really an option. Uh, paper books are still a pretty good option. I mean, I, I've almost stopped reading paper books because I love my Kindle so much. And I always want to have my book in my pocket, on my phone, or whatever. But paper has some advantages. You get to keep it if you want to. You could sell it back if you want to. You could give it to a friend. I mean, there, there's so many great things about uh, paper. That's the thing I don't like about paper. It weighs a lot. This was an issue that, that came up. And, and it's you know, less of an issue for me because I have an office I can keep books in. And I don't have to lug them all over the place. But I don't want my students to have to tote. Uh, anybody try to pick up the Oxford uh, History of Western Music College Edition? That is a heavy book. It's a very, very heavy book. Um, I requested an extra copy from the publisher so that I could keep one at home and one at the office because I didn't want to carry it. Um, so I, I don't like heavy books. Um, so anyway, there, there were a couple of um, attempts to solve the problem of uh, expensive textbooks in my counterpoint class. The first thing I did was I wrote a workbook. The workbook was something I felt, well, I could probably write my own workbook without too much trouble. You need a bunch of cantus firmuses for them to write counterpoint against. It's, it's not rocket science. And so I wrote a workbook. I give it to them for free as a PDF. And I, I'm not a huge fan of PDF, but for this purpose, it's perfect. Because what I want them to do is print it, write on it, and turn it in. Uh, and it's free. Anybody around the world, whoever wants it, can have it. I don't, I don't care. It's a Creative Commons license. And then... For the book that cost $125, I said, guys, just go find any old edition of this you want, and it's fine. They, they differ only in pagination, and usually not that much in pagination, but not at all in content. The, the content is virtually identical from first through fourth editions, and they're plentiful on the used market for under $10. And so uh, that worked really well. I mean, students, uh, the problem with that one was uh, they find out about this on the first day of class, and then it's two weeks before they can get their copy in. So what I started to do was collect them myself. At the end of the semester, I'd buy books from the students. And uh, before long, I have like 10 copies of it. And then next time I taught the course, I say, students, if you want to, you can uh, borrow this book for the whole semester for $20. Give it back to me at the end of the semester, you get your $20 back. If they don't give it back, I take that $20 and buy another copy of the book. And so um, that actually worked pretty well. Students were happy. They really didn't have to pay anything. But um, it's, I, I still wanted an e-book. 
or, or something that, that I could just provide them for free and not have to go through that whole thing of um, finding books. So my new solution was to track down a public domain counterpoint textbook. And I found a couple. Uh, the first place I looked was Project Gutenberg, because that's where I get all the stuff I like to read for, for pleasure, um, old 19th century fiction and stuff like that. But they had one counterpoint book that was not really appropriate. It was like 40 lessons in counterpoint, and it was you know, really thin, and, um, and it was okay, but not really appropriate for my class. So I went over to archive.org and found two books by this guy, Percy Gertrus, who published a bunch of books back in the early part of the 20th century, including these two. The one that uh, I thought was most appropriate for my class was Exercises in Elementary Counterpoint. And then I also uh, took the other one, uh, Applied Counterpoint, which is much more advanced, learning to write fugues and inventions and canons and all that. But, um, oh, and here's the address, uh, archive.org. Incidentally, I forgot to mention, I've got a handout. I, I wasn't sure if this conference did handouts. I haven't seen very many, but I have a handout. And if I ran out, then you can like do a QR code and get an online version of the handout that's much better, actually. It's got links to all of the stuff I talk about in an embedded video. Um, so the, at archive.org, what they have, it's a repository of stuff, all kinds of stuff, audio, video, and a lot of books. This was an example of what I would call a scan and dump. So some library somewhere has an excellent scanning machine that'll scan a whole book really fast, and then it runs, I presume, some kind of script that will convert the output of that scan into multiple formats, including things like HTML, plain text, RTF, uh, PDF, um, Mobi, I mean, all kinds of formats, and then they just dump it on the server. And so I found that, and I downloaded two things, the PDF and the EPUB. I wanted the EPUB because when you unpack an EPUB, there's HTML in there. I like HTML. Uh, because of uh, some things I'll talk about in just a moment. But, so that's what the PDF looked like. It's beautifully scanned. I could have just given the PDF to my students and said, this is our book. And uh, they probably would have been okay with that. It's free. They can read it. You know, they can download it onto their tablets or computers or whatever. However, I'm not a big fan of PDF. And um, I wanted to make it something a little bit more flexible. And so I looked at the EPUB, and here's what I found. Oh my goodness. This is the same page we were just looking at. Take a look. Uh, we see here 17a, the interval most to be shunned between two ascendants and so forth. What happened to the musical examples? Oh dear. Um, the examples just didn't come out. They, they end up as um, ASCII gibberish uh, on the, the screen. And so I, I thought, well, if I'm going to, to make something usable out of this, I've, I've got a lot of work ahead of me. And so uh, I, I decided to try it anyway. I mean, I could have just used the PDF, but to me, this is a PDF. Uh, that represents a PDF to me because it's, it's, it's so static. Like, if you try to view a PDF on an iPad, man, it looks great. It looks great, right? But what about my phone? On the phone, uh, there's the PDF. I can't see that. It's too little. But I can zoom in, right? And the same thing happens as on that other thing. So I'll turn it sideways. Hey, I can still read it, but then, you know, you get a few lines at a time. Um, and so what I wanted was something flexible. And that is HTML. To me, this represents HTML. A liquid, because whatever container you pour it into, it flows to fill it perfectly, right? That's what HTML does. And so for the ebook, 
we get something that you might even be able to read from where you're sitting right there. It reflows all the lines to fit the screen. If you can't read it, you just change the font size, right? That's bigger now. You can read that. Uh, an ebook, you, you, to me, it's not an ebook if you can't change the font size. Um, because, and that's, that's an accessibility issue, and it's about um, being able to um, adapt on the fly to fit whatever screen you're looking at. You can also do something like use a different font face. Here I've used the open dyslexic font, which uh, allegedly helps dyslexic readers to read a lot more accurately. You can't do that on a PDF. You can't just change the font face. To me, an ebook has to be able to change the font face as well. And so, um, what I did was start to um, just work through the book. Um, the, the first thing to do, of course, was to correct the text. So, even, I mean, obviously the musical examples were uh, AWOL, They're, they weren't there. But, of course, the, the OCR doesn't get everything right in the plain text either. So, first thing to do is just correct all the text. And uh, I did that, it took a while. Um, reading through the text, I got a good feel of um, how the book was put together. To make a book like this work, you really have to um, you have to put in an infrastructure that makes it possible to do non-linear reading. Because um, I mean, in a novel, of course, you expect someone to just start at the beginning and read all the way till the end. Don't necessarily do that in a textbook. A lot of times, you'll need to start on chapter five or you know go here and there and just jump all over the place. And there has to be a suitable HTML infrastructure in place to make it easy to jump around. And so I put that, you know, I've got HTML anchors for all the chapters. For um, the basic structural unit of this book is the paragraph. And he, it's like a like giant ordered list. Paragraph one, two, three, all the way through like 250. And he's frequently saying, uh, for more information about this, see paragraph 71. Or something. And so every time he does that, there's a link. You tap on that, and it goes right there. And to me, that not doing that would have been ignoring one of the most fundamental benefits of HTML. And so you can see this is what the source code looks like when I'm uh, done with it. Um, you've got uh, hyperlinks on references to the various paragraphs. You've got the image files. And here is the killer feature for my book. I also thought I was finally going to address, to me, the, like the most glaring omission from uh, music theory textbooks, and that is the play button. There's no play button under the examples in theory books. And um, you might think, well, what does that matter? I mean, you, you, a good musician ought to be able to look at that example and imagine it in his head. And like, well, I mean, I can do that. I've, I've got a lot of training. But my students see that, and they just turn the page, and they, they don't even look at it. And so um, my task, as I saw it, was uh, to create a version of the book where that appears under every single one. And so um, that took some doing. Um, what I did was to, um, well, it's a long process. However, <laughs> I, I came up with a workflow that made it uh, doable. I, I would have given up ages ago if I didn't have certain skills at uh, programming and automating things. And so um, I decided to use, to create the MIDI files, um, a program called LilyPond, which is listed on the um, handout there. LilyPond's an open source cross-platform music notation program that uses plain text as an input and outputs other stuff, images, PDFs, uh, audio. And so I, the main thing I needed it for was to create the audio. Um, part of my uh, script, when I finished a little bit of code that will create an example, it will generate uh, an image, which I didn't necessarily use. I, I decided after a while that I need to do screenshots instead of 
brand new images for reasons that I'll go into if we got uh, time. But um, it generates a, a MIDI file, which I then have part of my script convert to MP3 and AUG format. And it lastly creates a little block of HTML code that when I speak a command, zaps it right into my file. And uh, voila, I've got a play button. And so I, I got this workflow going where it allowed me to do uh, these, these play buttons fairly rapidly. And so... Um, I forget where. I had initially thought I was going to read from a script for this. <laughs> and after going to a number of papers, I decided, well, maybe I'll just uh, go from my slides. And I know this topic backwards and forwards because I, of course, did it. But um, I, I'm not sure exactly where I should go next in the discussion because I don't know what you guys are going to be interested in. But um, essentially, that's my, my process. Um, creating. Oh, the next thing I need to talk about, I suppose, is... Um, how to read this thing. So my source file is HTML. And at first I thought I would just put this on my web server and have a, a great big HTML page, which it has benefits and um, drawbacks. Uh, benefit is that all of the hyperlinks and all the audio works perfectly. Drawback, it's a very, very large file size for that page. And so loading the page up on, on a desktop, it's no problem. But on my phone, man, it took forever. Not acceptable. And so... Um, I decided to convert the HTML format into ebook formats, EPUB and AZW3 for, um, well, EPUB reads on lots of things. AZW3 is for the Kindle. Uh, the Kindle, sadly, does not support audio. It, it, like, you can't put a play button in here. I still want to read that book on my Kindle just because I love my Kindle, <laughs> because I love the way it looks. It still looks like a paper book, only it's a little smaller, and I can change the font size and, and all that. Um, and so uh, I do create Kindle versions, even though they don't have the audio. Um, but I also still wanted to have a version that somebody who doesn't have a fancy smartphone or an iPad can read just on a desktop, but still get a, an ebook experience. And that was, uh, I, I found a tool called Monocle, which is a, a set of JavaScripts that you can put on your web server that will give you the experience of an ebook. And, uh, I would be demonstrating this right now if I had not had the technical difficulty with my laptop. But uh, you can um, go in a web browser, Chrome works best, to uh, this one page on my website, and the whole book is done in a, like a, an ebook reader that's embedded in my web page. And you get to, you know, it turns pages, and you can sometimes change the fonts if you can manage to click in just the right spot. This is not a perfect uh, ebook reader. But to me, it's better than trying to load up the giant web page all at once. I even use the Monocle version on my phone using the Chrome mobile browser, and that's my favorite way to look at it on the phone. Um, distribution of the book. I mean, this is something I would like for anyone who's interested in a free CounterPoint book to use freely, do whatever they want with it. I, I'm not interested in getting any money for it. I, I just wanted to give my students a book for free. And um, anyone is welcome to get it from my server. However, I, I would love to find, uh, I guess this is the next step, is find somewhere to give it a home where it would be more central, more of a more official kind of textbook place where uh, more people could discover it easier and then just download it freely. great thing about my book is that, um, I mean, it's... It, it doesn't really need peer review in terms of content because it went through like 15 editions on, <laughs> on uh, published by G. Shermer. 
And so, I mean, it's a really good book. The, the language is a little bit quaint, but I, I kind of like it. I, I like hearing, he's sometimes even poetic. You know, those guys in the late 19th century wrote in a beautiful way sometimes. And so, um, but, I mean, you'll occasionally run across some terminology that's a little bit outdated and we might call things differently, but since the book I'm offering does not have any DRM on it, you know, digital rights management, just hack it. Just open it up and change the words if you don't want to. <laughs> um, it, it, I, I wouldn't care. And so, like, what I do instead is, like, when he starts talking about, say, the contrapuntal associate, um, I put a little footnote and say, nowadays we call this the countermotive. <laughs> and, uh, boy, you, you could also change it so that uh, any old-fashioned term, like, shows up in red or something. <laughs> um, uh, where was I going with that? I, I think that's about all I wanted to say about it. Um, Christian, yes. I have two questions, actually. Yeah. One is, uh, it seems like here you can rely on getting a, a resource that, according to you anyway, is not that fundamentally different from sources that are uh, commercially available now. But would that translate well to your other courses? Could you imagine, for example, finding a Harmony textbook that is public domain or even a, God forbid, a music history textbook? Right. I, of course, have thought about this a lot. And um, it, CounterPoint is particularly well-suited for this because what you're learning to do is write in a style that's 200 years old, and that style is never going to change. Now, teaching philosophies might change, you know, the different approach. I mean, I just got a brand new CounterPoint book a few weeks ago that came out. Um, so it, people are still publishing new CounterPoint books. And the reason why I called this reinvigorating the wheel is because I thought, why do we keep doing that? I mean, CounterPoint is so old, we don't need to reinvent the wheel here. Let's just reinvigorate it by taking this book, which to me is really good, and just making it new, making it uh, flexible and modern. And to me, it's actually better than anything available currently because of the play buttons. Uh, I mean, I had one of my students in the CounterPoint last semester said, Dr. Culp, I, I don't think I've ever even looked at an example in a textbook before, but yours, man, this is great. I can, I'll listen to every single one of them. <laughs> I think, and partly because it's kind of fun. Well, that <laughs> you know? gets me to my second question. It's a little more technical. Is when, you, when they hit the play button, is it generating some kind of automatic sort of default Tone or no, it's uh, it's an MP3 file that's embedded in the ebook itself. So is it instrument, is it's it original instrumentation from the example, or it's uh, like a generic piano sound. Okay. But that's something you could change. I mean, if if you had uh, access to my source files, and I, I would share them with anybody, um, if you've got a better MIDI generator than what I was using, you could get nicer quality sounds. And one thing that I had thought about doing for the future, for for whatever examples in there are appropriate is to take um, the recordings done on something like the open well-tempered clavier or the open Goldberg variations. This, these are, you guys familiar with these projects? Wonderful recordings by professional pianists that are public domain. Man, you could take some of those, cut out just the right spot, and put it in my book right there and have a real professional pianist doing these. Or maybe crowdfund a project to hire somebody to do nice studio recordings of every single one of those. The problem with that is it's not... Uh, it's not scriptable. I, I, my, my criterion for using like Lily Pond for the um, thing, I had to be able to script this because, I, like, for example, I, I realized early on that the file was getting way too big. Like it, and if I kept going at that rate, it was going to be like a 300 megabyte file size, which is way too big. And so uh, all I had to do was to write a brief shell script 
that would just regenerate all the files at a different bit rate and a different width for the images. And it took less than five minutes to regenerate like 600 media files, which is something you can't do unless you're using a tool that is uh, running from the command line. You can't do that in Finale. I mean, you, you got to open up every single file, re-export. I mean, it's, it's not doable. Yeah? Have you or anyone else in this room tried iBooks uh, for creating files like this? So iBooks, uh, there's a separate app. It's, I think iBooks University or something. Mm -hmm. iBooks something. Not just the iBooks e-reader. Mm -hmm. But um, that enables you, for those who don't have programming experience to just create very easily. Mm -hmm. It's not as customizable as you know, something that you can change, you change the script, but uh, you know, maybe for some people, have, have you used it? I've not used that. Okay. I, I have used some graphical program, like the, the, the program I use to generate the ebook formats is called Caliber. Okay. Uh, Caliber has a graphical um, version that's available for Mac, for Linux, for Windows. I, at first, I was using the graphical one, and that, that just was not doable, because every time I wanted to update the files and put them on my website, I had to open up Caliber, bring in the file, uh, right-click this, do, choose to format. I mean, it was terrible. Uh, and so I discovered, though, that Caliber has a set of command line tools, and so I wrote a script that would just take my original HTML and generate AZW3, EPUB, dyslexic AZW3, dyslexic EPUB, and then I, and that separate part of the script push all those files to my server. <laughs> but I, I realize I've got a different skill set than most people. I but, iBooks would be very accessible for a lot of people, and sure. it's meant to be interactive. Or, I mean, by interactive, you mean you can put videos and audio and, um, and pictures and, of course, text. And it, I think, I believe it's meant to save in an ebook format or various ebook formats. So I bet it would do EPUB. It would probably generate an EPUB file, though, and EPUB yeah. can be read on lots yeah. of stuff. Yeah. I, I tried doing a music history book uh, with it. The challenge with it was um, uh, cross-platform use for students. Okay. Uh, so I think you can open it on a browser, too. Right? Well, mm. but, I mean, it's the time Safari. that I was doing it and what is it going on now. I mean, okay. So I gave up okay. on the project. Also, the size of the file was absolutely huge. File size can be a problem. I mean, uh, my, I finished um, this book. I've got the real books right here, by the way. These two, right here. Uh, this one, uh, I think, is 56 megs, and uh, this one is about 28 megs in its uh, ebook format. And to me, that's reasonable. Yeah. I, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Okay. Personally, I really I appreciate your care for the students and not spending too much money and all that. The devil's advocate part is, are you training them to expect to get the efforts of your labor free? And is that of my labor, yes. But I, I, isn't that worth them? You're getting <laughs> um, something? It's possibly. I mean, I could, I could probably sell it. I, I come from an open source background, and so I believe very firmly in open learning materials. I realize I'm weird that way. And um, look, I, I think they appreciate it. I, oh, I'm sure. But, um, I, I'm just reflecting on the whole issue of, of copyright and, you know, is music worth paying for and is instruction well, sure worth it is. paying for. And, um, if somebody wants to pay me as a consultant to help them do that, I'm, I'm more than willing to charge them. Uh, <laughs> but I, I mean, for my own students, for, for this project, I, I want to release it in a free license. I mean, I, I, I don't want to... I mean, to me, re-releasing it with some kind of copyright would defeat the whole purpose of my project. 
because I, I want it to be free. Yeah, Chuck. Are you doing it in like in commons? There's some kind of agreement where, like, so let's say I go and get this, uh -huh. and then I go and tweak a few things, and then I publish it. You could do that if you wanted to. And get money for it, or are you doing? It's up to you, but just realize that people could still come to my website and get it for free. Yeah. <laughs> so you're not doing it like as part of a Creative Commons agreement. No, no. I mean, it's a public domain book, and the source code from all my LilyPond files, I made GPL v3, which is an open source license. That just means that if you make any modifications to that code, you have to share it. But so, and they, so there is an agreement. I'm thinking one of the um, library. Um, databases that a university is using, you know, they've hired somebody to do it. It was, uh, you know, mm -hmm. it was open source, but now they can't go back and get to it because the company that did the yeah. modifications for them supposedly under open source. Yeah, the the open source licensing is uh, is kind of a it's it's a thorny issue. If you don't license it just right, you could run into the problem you're talking about yeah. right there. The, the GPL v3 is one where that requires you to share it. Like, you can't just close it up after you've done that. Anything else? We are, am I the little red light here at the end of this thing? <laughs> Thanks. We started a bit late, and you're just at the five-minute mark. Anyone <laughs> who would like to stay, uh, actually, uh, there's no session following in this room, so if you still have questions for Dr. Culp, feel free. Or for um, Dave and Peter, feel free to stay with us. Cool. Thank you, Dr. Thank you. Thank you. That's great. Uh, you You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.